Well, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> it's good to see all of you this morning as we gather again to worship our Lord and King, Christ Jesus. Turn your Bibles, if you would, this morning to Proverbs chapter 16. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 16. Take a break from 1 Samuel and um, <clears throat> want to deal with this particular verse this morning. Um, it's something that's been kind of lingering over me the last couple of weeks and really sense that the Lord is, is in this. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 26. I'm only going to read one verse and then we'll dive in. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 26 reads this. A worker's appetite works for him. For his hunger urges him on. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for our time this morning. I thank you for just allowing us to gather. Lord, just the fact that we're still alive and we're breathing and we have the ability to um, worship you and say your name through sinful lips is such a um, huge privilege. Lord, that none of us deserve. Lord, but you've made it possible. There's not one person in here that has merited anything with you, Lord, and deserves to be joined together in the body of Christ. Lord, but it's because of your grace and mercy and kindness and your sovereignty over your elect that has brought us to this place today. And Lord, we're thankful uh, that you are all-powerful and all-knowing, that you control everything. Lord, even the very words that are going to come from my mouth today, Lord, I'd ask God that you would send your Holy Spirit, Lord. I'd appeal to you this morning, Lord, I'd petition thee, Lord, that you would send your Spirit into my heart. Uh, give me the ability to be able to proclaim your word. Uh, give your church, Lord, your people also, Lord, an ability to hear, Lord, what you would have to say, not necessarily what I would have to say. Because, Lord, it's about you speaking to your church. And you are the governor of our lives, Lord. So you commit this time into your hands, Lord, and we're thankful. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. A worker's appetite works for him. For his hunger <clears throat> urges him on. I find myself frequently gravitating back to the book of Proverbs. Its wisdom for daily life is unparalleled in any other book outside of the reality of Jesus Christ himself, who is the embodiment of truth. Um, but as far as a book is, really the book of Proverbs really sums up the meaning of life and how to live it. Those of us who are sanctified, those of us who have been bought and purchased by the blood of Christ, those of us who are um, the body of Christ, uh, the book of Proverbs is, is really powerful because it's really its main purpose is to teach God's people wisdom. But not only that, it's, it's to teach us the practical, ethical way to live. It focuses on the behavior of God's people and how we should live, how we should deal with others, how we should deal with ourselves, how we should deal with the Lord. It's a practical book. And I do find myself frequently gravitating back to it um, and, and going to it. And it really seems um, to have the ability 
to really reach in and be able to help you operate biblically in a fallen world. The book was written mainly by Solomon, who was basically the wise, wisest king ever to rule. The pathway to success in everyday living requires pursuing the practical wisdom of the Lord amidst the distractions of a seductive world. Ken Myers, an astute Christian observer of popular culture, writes, I believe that the challenge of living with popular culture may well be as serious for modern Christians as persecution and plagues were for the saints of earlier centuries. Enemies that come loudly and visibly are usually much easier to fight than those that are undetectable. Charles Spurgeon once said, that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Went on to say, never were there good times when the church and the world were joined in marriage. John Piper once said, today the greatest challenge facing American evangelicals is not persecution from the world, but seduction by the world. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. One thing that keeps coming back to me throughout this week, I even brought it up at our last Bible study, and it was a topic of examining our appetites, our urges, our desires, living in a way that shows that the Lord truly rules and reigns and governs over the life of his people. We live in a world that is driven by its relentless pursuit for pleasure and plenty. While the world and its endless feeding frenzy and every kind of pleasure, fantasy, and perversion, we as Christians must bring down the guillotine of God's word upon our own lives. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30, he says, If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. This particular verse here is, is obviously it's, it's, um, it's exaggerated form and, and it's trying to communicate this point that if there's anything in the believer's life that causes us to continual, continually sin against God, it's almost to the point where he had to graphically define it so we would get it. This is how important it is to a holy and righteous Savior that there are things in our life we need to understand as believers. We do need to sober up because American Christianity has so infiltrated the lives of most believers in this country that it's almost a byproduct of the prime product of this constant heretical preaching out there that's really dimmed the lights on biblical holiness in the Christian life. We need to understand this reality. Yes, God still gets offended at sin. 
And to such an extent, Christ makes this very clear point that if there's anything that's con contrary to the faith that's been given to you through Jesus Christ, it's better off that we cut it off and that, that we would fail in our life serving Christ. Proverbs 23.2 says, And put a knife to your throat. If you are a man given to what? To your appetites. This is another very stark picture and illustration. Not that we should take a literal knife and put it to our throat. But this reality of how important it is and how God views the Christian life to such an extent that we need to have self-control. We need to be governed by Christ. We need to be slaves to Christ, not slaves to our sin. Jesus Christ came into the world and set us free so that we may worship him in spirit and in truth, that we would no longer be enslaved to the things of the world, but be enslaved to a new master, and that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In Proverbs 16, 26, here it is given the nature of our appetites, whether good or bad. Um, the urges of life can either be found to our benefit or our demise. Sanctified or unsanctified, they drive us in one direction or another. One drives us onward towards godliness with a healthy work ethic, while the other drives us into despair, slavery, and addiction. A worker's appetite works for him. Notice here it says that the appetite or urges work for the worker. They work for us, not against us. One drives us obviously towards Christ, while the other one drives us almost to insanity. The other route is becomes a, this particular urge, this appetite can become Slavery, and very opposite of what the scriptures tell us in this particular verse. We don't want to be a slave to our appetites, brothers and sisters. We do not want to be in slavery to our urges and appetites if they're sinful. And usually that indication of slavery, you know, shows that we have been held captive by this. And this is where you get the reoccurring patterns of even addiction. Now, obviously, we, I don't really have a lot of time to dive in to addiction and, and basically, you know, how a lot of these, um, these ways of life or these things that we go to um, in order to find some kind of um, release or relief from life. A lot of times, addictions are provided for us to find an escape or to erase us from having to deal with pain or trauma. Uh, there's so many things that operate behind addiction. So it's very difficult just to make one blanket statement about all addiction because we don't really know what the other person's going through. But we do know anything that a person's addicted to outside of the Lord Jesus Christ is idolatry. This verse speaks in the positive sense, describing this hunger or appetite is working for him, not against him, driving the saint forward like a team of horses. He has his appetite working for him. He has made it his slave and not the other way around. 
The KJV says it this way, He that laboreth, laboreth for himself, for his mouth craveth it of him. So now we got this issue of cravings, desires. I love this idea that we can picture this because we all know what it's like to crave stuff, right? I'm not talking about in the sense of addictions or urges like in that sense, but when you crave something sweet or boy, you say, man, I have a really severe craving for ice cream right now. So you'll go right out in the middle of the night, go to wherever, whatever store is open and you don't care about your sleep. You don't care about anything else outside of this reality of getting this desire satisfied. It's a craving, which craving actually means demanding gratification, demanding it. It's not like waiting for it. It's not like saying, hey, hold on. It's this longing for. It's really a powerful desire for something. Deals with the desire of the heart. David Brainerd, the famous missionary to the Indians, says this. It's really interesting because you can see the difference from those who have opposite cravings than that of the Lord. His are right in line with, I believe, the Bible is explaining here in um, Proverbs when he says, my soul longs to feel itself more of a pilgrim and a stranger here below, that nothing may divert me from the pressing through the loneliest desert till I arrive at my father's house. Such a beautiful illustration of a man who's completely set on fire for God. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And this is the opposite of the spectrum here for us as believers. This should be our drive because Jesus promises us in his word that Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they might be filled. No, it says that they will be content. They will be satisfied. And I understand that there are urges in the, in the, in, in the life, just as our, um, our saintly pilgrimage here on this planet will never fully and completely be satisfied because we're, we're not made uh, necessarily for a fallen planet. You know, we're designed and we crave for another world. We crave to go back home. God never allows us to be fully satisfied in the sense of being spiritually satisfied with Christ, yes, but he never allows us to be fully comfortable here on this planet. There's always this yearning to want to go home. And I'm sure a lot of you can testify to this reality that, you know, uh, my wife says, you just count down the minutes, you know, because there is a sense that this world was designed in a way where we don't get comfortable. That we're, we are made to feel the sting of sin and a fallen world and pain and suffering and affliction, heartache, betrayal, rejection. We, 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 we have to deal with these things. But what all those things do is they, they, they foster within us a desire to go home. But also it fosters in us a contentment because we know where we're going. We know that this is our home and we can deal with it. But during the process, as we navigate, we can be fully satisfied with Jesus Christ. Urges are wonderful as long as they are placed in their proper place. But once again, when that 
appetite rules over us and the appetite is something that is not of the Lord, it becomes your master. And the Bible says very clearly, as we all know the verse, we cannot serve two masters. No one can serve two masters, Jesus said. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. We know obviously he was talking about money in this in context of this verse, but this goes with anything, um, anything in life. You, he's not going to share his glory with anything else and anyone else or with you. He is the glorious one. He is the master. We cannot serve two masters. We can't live in loving the world and also saying that we love Christ. Uh, it's an oxymoron. This reality is that um, Christ must be our only master. Symbolic in baptism. When you see someone get baptized, really what they're, they're doing is that they're proclaiming the gospel through this ordinance of baptism, showing you that they once lived to an old master, the old master of Satan and sin. And then they go down into the grave, into the water, representing that they come up out of the water, out of the grave, under a new master, and that's the Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A worker's appetite, it works for him. His hunger keeps him progressing forward. This strong desire becomes diligence and keeps him in a state of wanting. Another translation says it this way. The worker's hunger helps him. His desire to eat makes him work. In a physical sense, how many of you have been just starving to death? Right? You want to eat, right? It drives you. It keeps you awake. You go to bed with an empty stomach, it's hard to sleep, right? Um, we know that many of us may be suffering financially, not enough money at the end of the month to pay our bills or to put food on the table. You know, but this is what the scriptures are showing us here, that it's good to be in pain. It's good to live the lean life. It's good not to get too cozy and comfortable and plump in this world. See, this, this, it isn't, being a Christian isn't about getting and living this spoiled life like the world. We find ourselves complaining about the things that the world complains about. We'll complain about our food. We'll complain about our, our living. We'll complain about this. And in reality, we live like kings in this country. Even some of the homeless people live better than some of the people that have homes. I mean, in America, listen, we do honestly have it very good. I get it. There's pain, there's problems, and those things are not to be discounted or minimized. But the reality is, listen, we, we, we need to come to this understanding that it's okay to be hungry. It's okay to feel that pain. Why? Because it urges us on, if we take it in a positive biblical sense, it urges us on what? To work. To establish something, to take care of those things that need to be taken care of. And obviously we can take it to a deeper meaning by having this hunger inside of us that presses us on because we can build it spiritually. Because we can see what, what feeds you spiritually. What, what's the driving force in the believer's life that, that satisfies his actions? What is it that he does that shows that he is a follower of Christ? His life should manifest his actions and the fruit of his life, not only his, just his behavior and his, his morality, but what he does, how he, 
how he spends his time, the, thing, the things that we do, he or she, what it is that we invest our life into, what we feed off from, what we get energy from. Is that of Christ or is it the things of this world? Are you a slave to Christ or are you a slave to other things? It's easy to sit here and say, oh yeah, I know someone like that. But what about you? What about you? If we were going to take an inventory of your life over the last couple weeks, we're going to project it on this movie screen for everybody to see today. What would that look like? What would it look like? What about your thought life? We could just take the thoughts that you thought about in the last 24 hours, the things that you think about, the things that are important to you, and put them up on the screen for everybody to see. They could see what literally has been going through your mind probably in the last 24 hours. Your best friends had run for cover. Think about that for just a moment, the sinful nature and its drives and why we need to bring the guillotine of God's word down upon our hearts and that we would be totally devoted and single-minded towards Christ. We all fail, right? There's no one that's ever achieved the perfect life other than Jesus Christ. Don't get me wrong. I constantly fail. I constantly trip. I constantly make fool a fool out of myself. I know that. But it doesn't change the word of God. It doesn't change the commands of God for my life because it's a continual striving and seeing, hey, yeah, there's idols in my life. These are the driving force of my life. If you're going to be honest today, this is the driving force. It's me. It's my idols. It's the things that I worship outside of Christ. These become the driving force of my life. It could be your job. As Sean said one time, the good things in life get in, get in the way of the God things in life. A lot, of God, a lot of good things, but they're not God's things for you. And we can clutter our lives up with these things, and these things too can become a source of really a wrongful attention on the things that really we need to focus more on Christ. Ecclesiastes speaks of this in the negative sense, but the right point, Ecclesiastes 6 Chapter 7, it says, All of man's labor is for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. And this is really <clears throat> indicative, or it can be used as a, when we study the word, and you guys probably already know this, but a lot of times it's dealing with the seat, seat of our emotion, the seat of our soul. It deals with it in different names, like the stomach, um, the heart, the mind. You know, Because all of you know, when something goes tragic, where do you feel it? I don't feel it here, I feel it here. I feel it in my inmost parts. The pain of death or tragedy of someone, you know, it's, it's that pain that strikes us at the very core of our being and you feel it in your stomach. That's why people say, you know, when, when they hear about things that have happened to little kids or a lot of these things are going on today, it just sickens them to their very stomach. Hunger, in some sense, is the great stimulus of all our work. We commanded you, said St. Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, that if any would not work, neither should they eat. This isn't about having a nine-to-five job. This is about the governing reality of being hungry. If you're not hungry, you're not going to work. If you're not going to work, you're not going to eat. It's really dealing with this whole reality of being hungry and how hunger can drive us both in a positive sense and in a negative sense. 
And as a believer, reading through the Proverbs, reading through the Word of God, reading about our Lord and Savior, we want to be, at the end, where our, where our appetites are not only given to us by Christ, but are governed by Christ as well. Philippians 3.14, Paul said, I press, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 9.16, Paul said, for, I, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, here we go, for necessity is laid upon me. This necessity to the point where he says, cursed is me if I do not preach the gospel. The Apostle Paul speaks of this when dealing with the enemies of the cross. Philippians 3.19, he says, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind, who mind earthly things. This is the unconverted, as the preceding clause refers chiefly to self-indulgence, to this impurity. You see, the opposite of the spectrum is that we're self-indulgent. We're pleasure seekers. We want and we want and we want. And Ecclesiastes says, in an unconverted state or a mind that's not spiritually minded as a believer will never be satisfied. It constantly wants. This is the addictive reality of being outside of Christ is that there's things that you constantly run to to be medicated. You thinking that somehow that this this place is going to bring a sedative to your life that's going to be permanent, but it doesn't. It just enslaves. And that's why you get in the hamster wheel of the whole dopamine reality of your body functioning in such a way that it begins to rely on these habits like one would rely on a drug. Like cocaine, heroin, all these things. Give us the sense of being hugged or nurtured. And we run to these things. Pornography. These things all have this ability to give us the dopamine burst that can keep us coming back for more and to such an extent where it becomes a debilitating addiction that really becomes almost to the point of, at some point, bringing um, spiritual death. I'm not saying you're losing your salvation. But I'm going to say you will definitely, as Paul said, shipwreck your faith. The Bible uses different words to describe the same place of feeling, our motives, our pain, such as in Jeremiah 4.19, linked with the stomach when he says, my bowels, he says, my bowels are in pain. The sense of my heart are troubled within me. I will not hold my peace, for my soul hath heard the sound of the trumpet, the cry of battle. Matthew Henry writes, the prophet is here in agony <clears throat> and cries out like one upon the rack of pain with some acute distemper or as a woman in travail. This laboring from scripture gives us that picture of a woman in travail. Jeremiah 20 verse 9 says, Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. But he says, here's the thing, but his, but his word was in my heart like a burning fire, shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. This was the driving force in Jeremiah's life. This was the driving appetite. This was his hunger. Was pressing him on. Was pressing him on. 
to the prize. And it may not always sound like a fun prize, because if you read Jeremiah's life, where did he end up? He ended up in some, what, pit, really into some, some mud pit, right? But if we realize that God put him there to protect him from the Babylonian, what, captivity that came in and struck all the people down, here's Jeremiah, look at, look at me, look at him up to my neck in mud, but you're protected from the ravages of the invading army. Proverbs 16.26 A worker's appetite works for him but his hunger urges him on. Or he that laboreth laboreth for himself for his mouth craveth of him. It is the feeling that he is supplying as one commentator says his own needs give him strength for his work. His work or what the Bible uses in the King James is more accurate really is this laboring aspect. That, that we see in this idea of when the Bible uses labor, the original languages, in most, in most instances, really it's the same description as a woman in travail, a woman in labor. I mean, I've never been in labor before. I've never been in that kind of pain before. My wife has many times. She can tell you that it's extremely painful. And it is an expression that gets the point across, very similar to when Christ said, remove your hand, your eyeball. They use very powerful, very powerful language to get the point across so you don't slumber off into some, some American view of things. It keeps us on the edge of our seat and going, wow. Wow, it's amazing that he was driven to such an extent, Jeremiah, to the point he was like a woman in travail. A distempered man. A man almost went loony because he was so infatuated with what God's purposes were for his life. And not just that he's infatuated from a manufactured from the flesh, but it was God himself invading the man himself and moving upon him as the pathos and emotions of God was moving upon his prophet in such a way that he literally felt the pain of God. It's a beautiful thing. The Hebrew meaning of the word labor really is, is um, the Hebrew word, which is called avodah. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that word, but the word avodah comes from the ancient Hebrew. So ancient, in fact, that its root word, avad, appears all the way back in the second chapter of Genesis. Avodah shows up later in, in chapter 29, and throughout the Old Testament, variations of this word, this root word, are found over a thousand times. In scripture. Ergazomai is the Greek word equivalent to the word or term avodah, which avodah comes from the word abad, which is a primitive word, and it means to work in the sense by implication to serve or to till. And on the negative sense, it shows the this labor of being enslaved to another master, to be kept in bondage. Also, in other words, it shows the work from one sense uh, to the point where it's in a positive light. Then it shows the work in the sense to where you're enslaved in a negative light. And this word avodah doesn't mean just one thing. In the English version of the scripture, it has been roughly translated into three different words. In the English language, it's been translated into three 
different words to be able to get the um, the idea of what is being communicated. And the three different words that Avodah break down into are the words work, worship, and service. This is the idea of the labor in which we're dealing with. This labor that works for the worker. His hunger continually keeps him moving. It's this, uh, it's this Avodah in what the Bible is talking about, broken down into three points here, um, that really deal with the three actions of the life of those who are serving the Lord. It comes in the form of work. Their labor comes in the form of work. It comes in the form of worship, and it comes in the form of service. And this is how I've broken, I've, I've broken these down today into these three parts, so we can kind of look at these quickly as our application points for this morning. See, God wants every part of us. He wants, he wants our work. He wants our service. He wants our worship. And all these are intertwined because it's all part of living our lives completely devoted to God. You know, these three words that mean separate different lifestyles, they're all compressed together to give us the one word of what labor looks like under the power of God. The main end of our lives is to serve God, is to, is to worship, and of serving men, which is the service, and in the works of our calling, the work. The word avodah, this group here, is translated to the English New Testament in three ways. Avodah translates into the numerical number of five. Five is indicative of being filled, prepared, and empowered to go forth on whatever mission the Lord has given the one. To do. Also, the number five is also symbolizes grace, goodness, and favor towards humans. It is mentioned 318 times in Scripture. And five is the number of grace. And multiplied by itself, which is 25, means grace upon grace. I would like to use the English translation for the purpose of addressing each of these areas in our application to our lives this morning. The first one, be in service. First, it is often translated as service where one submits him or herself to the allegiance of another. Whether that be a, whether a slave to a master or the picture is someone who is subjected to the king, to a king. This is what we really want to think of this morning in this area of what is the Bible talking about when it's dealing with labor in this point. And... It really wants us to focus on this idea because we can change the wording. We can make it fit into whatever we want to do. You hear, you hear it all the time that we're doing, you know, I'm serving the church. I'm serving this. I'm serving this. But this reality is, is that we are submitting uh, our allegiance to another. The first submission comes to God. We're, we're submitting to the Lord and our King, Jesus Christ. This is the whole idea where everything else begins to make sense. And that's where our spiritual hunger begins to be driven from, where we constantly ache and, 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 and hunger uh, for Christ. Christ being the object and our service being the action which is shown in our lives. A worker's appetite, it works for him, for his hunger urges him on. As we've already stated, no one can serve two masters. It is the master, Jesus Christ, alone. 
A worker's appetite works for him, not against him. He has mastery over it. It does not have mastery over him. But with every appetite, there first must become, there must be first an urge or a craving. Jonathan Edwards um, called uh, these affections. And these affections are the driving force of the Christian life. All labor of man is for his mouth, one commentator said. We should say stomach. Hunger, in some sense, is the great stimulus of all of our work. We must remember that hunger must come first before we are willing to labor. Barnes says, hunger of some kind is the spring of all hearty labor. Without that, the man would sit down and take ease. He would be idle. So also, unless there is a hunger in the soul, craving to be fed, there can be no true labor after righteousness and wisdom. Really, it's the empty stomach syndrome. Pain pushes us on, doesn't it? It's good for us to be hungry. It's good for us to, to feel the pain of hunger. It's good for us to be, to be continually driven. You know, I heard someone say one time, I don't remember what book my wife and I were reading, it was called The Dangers of a Full Freezer. You know, sometimes everything's full, everything's good, you got more than you need, you're not, you're not driven in any sense. It's almost you become idle. You know, the Bible says, woe to them who are at ease in Zion. Not that there's anything wrong with having uh, enough to live on or enough to be satisfied on and doing well for yourself. It's not a poverty gospel that's being proclaimed here this morning, but it's an idea that we should always look to live a lean lifestyle, a lifestyle of fasting. A lifestyle, I don't mean just, I'm not talking about just not eating food, but I'm talking about our life should be a life of refraining from those things that offend God. Even at the pain of our own flesh, that we would find that God would nurture our desires in such a way that we would find that our defaults no longer are our phones, social media, and other things. Our default would be the scriptures and our holy God and our Savior. It was the last time you had a problem come up and you went to your knees and cried out to the Lord? Or did you run to your phone and begin to tap away until you felt the sedative effects of the dopamine kick in? When you start seeing the lights and everything going on, you find yourself fascinated in this alternate universe that isn't even real. And this is how you cope. It's a coping mechanism of your life. We have all kinds of coping mechanisms that we use to run to, to sedate us from reality. And from getting right with God. Because when we're in pain, we need to deal with what's causing that pain. What's causing our drives. If, it isn't, if Christ isn't our default, more of social media isn't going to make that better. The reality is, is that you know, we need to be those who have learned how to pray and how to study God's word. And it's interesting how if you took it as a stat, statistic... It's really interesting. I don't remember the exact statistic. I said it before in another sermon about how many Christians actually pray. And it was very limited, uh, very limited, you know, uh, in how many believers actually pray. I mean, they'll say a prayer, but they don't pray and seek the Lord. And they wonder why their marriages are a mess, their lives are a mess, all kinds of things are a mess because you're not driven. You're not driven by the things of God. You're driven by the flesh. You skip everything, run out the door, and then you deal with the world in the flesh. Just like Peter. 
When he skipped prayer time with the Lord, he jumps up with a sword and cuts someone's ear off. He's operating out of the flesh. And we do too. When we can't get on our knees, when we can't pray, we can't be driven to see the Lord, how can we expect that our lives would be in a such a way where they would be if we prayed? And this is a great, a great, you know, a great word for me as well this morning. It's really a death, death to self, sin, and this lustful world. It's time to kill the old master and be subjected to a new master. That our Lord and Savior can rule and reign freely in our lives. First Corinthians chapter six, twelve. Paul said, "All things are lawful to me, but not all things do profit. All things are lawful to me, but I will not be mastered by any complete mastery." over one's life. I'm not, don't take this as being legalistic because you guys know me better than that. But it is this development and being sanctified and pursuing Christ till there is a mastery over our lives. There should be a mastery there. We shouldn't default and just say, oh, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, which is true. But don't use it as an excuse to continue to remain in sin. I think Jerry was praying this morning about how the Spirit of God we're enabled by his power to overcome sin and to live a life to where our lives, you know, bear record to this reality that I'm a Christian. I'm not an unbeliever. Like if someone would see your life over the week, would they think you're a Christian? You know, or they think you're an unbeliever. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, what about the church? If the church could look at your life throughout the week, how you respond, how you talk, the things you're feeding on all week, would they, believe you're, would, they, would they believe you're a Christian? Or they believe you're a pagan? I'm just asking. I don't know. It's just a good place to consider. Jesus said in John 7, 37 and 38, On that last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and let him drink. He says in John 6, 27 through 33, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. Which brings us to the second point. The word avodah can be translated also as well into the word worship. And this is referring to the worship of the Lord that we see in Joshua 24, 14, and then the worshiping of idols that we, we see in just only one instance in Ezekiel 20, chapter 40. It's just it's two opposing realities of those who are the people of God and those who don't might be part of the people of God but do not live like the people of God. And then you have the complete, obviously, those who are unconverted. He that laboreth, laboreth for himself, for his mouth craveth it of him. You know, this idea of this worshiping our Lord, you know, so many people have so many different definitions, but the reality is it's just, it's, it's we're literally, God has empowered us by his spirit to worship him in spirit and in truth. But the, the this worship that, that, that comes over us and is manifested and testifies that we're of Christ is really shown in the outward 
version of our lives and what we do, how we talk, how we behave, how we think, how we respond, how we actually live, our behavior really testifies and professes of the one that we profess to follow. Acts 1.8, Jesus said this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit having come upon you and you will be witnesses for me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. We see the preliminary thing here. You will receive power first of the Holy Spirit of the living God. It will come upon you. And the reaction, the result of this reality, the Spirit of God coming upon you, you will be witnesses for me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. You don't get one without the other. Otherwise, you get legalism. Or you get a performance-driven mentality where you're trying to perform in such a way to get something from somebody else. In John 4, 38, it says, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. It's this, you know, it's these workers' appetite working for him, for his hunger urges him on. It's stepping into this reality of a life that really is inheritable. You know, you're, it's not really inheritable in the sense where you just get something other than the righteousness of Christ. It's not what I'm talking about. But the reality of the Christian life, your sanctification, your walk, comes from a long, long, long line. Uh, as Hebrew says, this great cloud of witnesses, others that have went before us. They've labored before us. <clears throat> they showed us the direction. Read the history of the church. You can see the direction of the church and how they've left a pattern for us and a path for us that we can see how to enter into their labors as we see the labors of Christ being produced in us. And then we see our appetites that are idols, the worship of idols. In James chapter 1, 14 through 15, it says, but each one of you is tempted when he is what? Carried away. And enticed by his own lust. This doesn't sound like something that's working for him. As a matter of fact, it looks like he's been carried away by something else. He's been carried away, and not only that, he's enticed, what? By his own lust. Then when that lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. I don't want to be carried away and enticed. Because a certain aspect about sin, it's very enticing. It's very enticing. You know, even in a converted life, it's a struggle more than anything else in life to not be in, not only just be so easily carried away, but also you're not only carried away to this particular sin, but you allow yourself to be enticed by it. And we can't just blame the devil because the Bible doesn't blame the devil here. It blames the person. 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. It's of the world. As a believer, our worship should be the aroma of Christ. It should be the aroma of the Christian life. Psalms 37.4 says, Delight yourself also. See the preliminary point here. Delight yourself also in the Lord. Then what? He shall give you the desires of your heart. First and foremost, we are to delight ourselves in the Lord. 
We don't just disown. This is the desire of my heart to be able to live that way because we can say anything of the Lord then because we're just living and being really just kind of governed by our own sin, our own sinful hearts. But this point says here, first of all, if you delight yourself in the Lord, then after that, he shall give you the desires of your heart. Why? Because you your desires are being manufactured by Christ. You've sat before your Lord and King, and when you come, you're operating from that reality. But then we see the opposite. We see idolatry in worshiping something other than God. It's false worship. Ezekiel 23, 20 says, There she lusted after her lovers, whose genitals were like those of donkeys, and whose emission was like that of horses. Why? It's disgusting. But it's just so... It gets to the point, doesn't it? Why do we want God to beat around the bush? When everybody else do. When everybody else to tiptoe around our sin. God doesn't tiptoe around our sin. He tells us like it is. And sometimes it's graphically disgusting. So we get the point. You're lusting after other things. Not longing for, but lusting after are two different things. And it will prove to your demise and death of your faith. Which brings us to our last and, and our final point, which is the third point, which is this idea of avodah, which avid is also translated as work. And this word is used in reference to vocations, hear me now, both secular and sacred, which can be found in Exodus 5.18 and Ezekiel 29.18. And this is really dealing with the service and the worship and the work that we have been given to by God. And these this is not where, like during the pre-Reformation days, where things had gotten so bad that the, the mother church, the Roman Catholic church, had so divided the differences between the secular and the sacred. Everything that was sacred was in the confines of the mother church. Everything that he did there was considered sacred and holy. But anything outside of that reality was considered secular. You hear it all the time. People say, oh, I got my secular job or secular this. Really, that is really inaccurate. The reality is, is that all things are holy and all things are sacred. And this is where the Reformation came in and it literally destroyed that whole concept. Because people, Luther um, translated the Bible into the common man's language. It no longer was in Latin where no one could understand all their moanings and babblings and hummings and whatever else they did in there. No one could get it, right? And I don't even think the, think the Pope even understood it. But it was, it was, it was this idea that the, the, that, the, that the people of God could read the Bible in the common man's language and they could understand that God wanted to be involved in every portion of the Christian's life. Therefore, when they go to work Monday morning, they could smile and glorify and worship God because they realize that their work isn't some secular activity that they're doing. No wonder people feel gloomy and miserable when they go to work. They don't think they're accomplishing anything that has any meaning. But see, when they understood the word of God, they realized everything has meaning and everything that they do is a calling. And I think when you have this idea and this understanding that what God's called you to do, as long as it's not, you know, some form of immorality or prostitution or stuff like that, it's not sanctified. But if you're calling in your work, it's what God has called you to do. Therefore, you can find, as Ecclesiastes said, you can find, you can find satisfaction in that work. 
And you can find that you don't have to frown and feel like your your whole life is without meaning and purposeless and, and it's just miserable. That you are there for the glory of God. Where God has you, you are to flourish and, and glorify Him. Why? Because you understand that He has you there for His glory and He has you there on purpose. And when you understand that, you can, you can, you can act differently at work. You don't realize that it's some, some cruddy job low-paying job, McDonald's, or whether you're working at some high-sales job. You're there where God has put you. Flourish. Don't look at it like some humdrum, dead-end job. But say, this is where the Lord has put me, and I'm going to flourish. I'm going to glorify Him. How do I glorify Him? I'm going to be ethically what the Proverbs in Christ have defined for me to be as a believer here. I'm going to get to work early. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to be positive. I'm not going to sow discord. I'm not going to be divisive. I'm not going to be gossiping. I'm going to do a hard works labor. I'm going to work hard. Uh, and I'm going to do the very best I can. Why? Because you do it unto the Lord. You glorify God through this. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I understand the difficulty with our sinful nature of grabbing a hold of this when Monday morning rolls around. Right? But this is true regardless, however you digest it. But I think if you got up Monday morning and you sought the Lord, you sought his word, and you spent time with this, I think God would blow this up inside of you. And this reality would catch on. And you would realize this. And you would find more joy in what you do instead of bellyaching constantly and murmuring about your job. How bad you hate it. How miserable you are. Well, if God has put you there, flourish. He's got a reason for it. Most of the time, it's sanctifying. It's sanctification to mold you and shape you more in the image of his son. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 3.23 says, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Just think of everything that you do from this point forward is unto the Lord. And it'll change your motive. And it'll change the way that you look at life. It really will. You know, it really will help you drive this idea that the boundaries of the secular versus the sacred view are removed. Now, if everything's sacred, then nothing's sacred, right? I'm not saying there are not sacred, compartmentalized things that, that, that are there, like the pulpit, by the way. Like, I mean, preaching is a categorized, um, sacred calling. Right? It's not like we just sit around in a circle and just share our thoughts and our interpretations. <clears throat> it's really a calling of the Lord. I'm not saying there are callings. Missionaries go to China and different things. I get all that and I agree with all that. I'm not saying there's nothing that is compartmentalized and has its own sacredness about it and calling about it. But my point is, if we don't miss what the point of the verses are saying, God is saying in his word that everything, if we would just look at it in his way, and look at it as a calling, we would be driven and our appetites that would drive us would be different than those of the world. Bottom line, what fuels our actions? What fuels your actions? What fuels your actions throughout last week? If you think about those, what fueled those? Can you say that you were, they, were, they were fueled by this reality that you're doing everything for Christ? Or was your labor fueled by this reality that you just can never be satisfied with anything. You're just a miserable, bitter person to be around. You're sloppy. You're lazy. You have no self-control. 
You live in a way that's literally disgusting before the eyes of God. And then you try to sanctify it, say it's all okay, and you become antinomian, anti-law. You have no kind of defining reality of what your life should look like as a believer. I'm saying that we don't fall and screw up and make a thousand million mistakes. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying at some point, we have to be called into account. You need to hold each other accountable. How are you living your life? You know, how are you spending your free time? You know, what are you doing with your life? You know, can we all take a little peek behind the curtain and see what you do during the week and see how you're behaving in the home? Oh, would we find something completely contrary to what you say that you are? I'm just asking. I mean, I, could, I mean, would that be said, said of me? You say the same thing about me. The worker's hunger helps him. It doesn't hurt him. Just remember that. The Bible says his hunger helps him. It doesn't hurt him. If you're doing anything in your life that you know hurts Christ, hurting yourself, will inevitably hurt everybody around you, hurt the church, and make the body sick. Pain produces action. And obviously remember the dangers of a full freezer. It's okay to be hungry. I would say keep yourself hungry at all times. Keep yourself hungry because it will keep you, it'll get you up in the morning. It'll keep you awake. It'll keep you driven. Keep yourself hungry. You know, Jerry and I talk about our keto diets and our carb depletion diets. I'm telling you what, man. It gives hunger a whole new definition. When you first, that first week is miserable. But when you get out of that and you come into that steadiness of once the, 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 the carb addiction goes away and the sugar addiction, there's nothing wrong with carbs. But the sugar gets out of your system. You find that steadiness in your, in your blood level, your blood sugar levels and all that, your insulin and all that. You just feel better. You're like, man, I'm glad I got through that. You know, but there's always that sense that I'm hungry now. I'm hungry every day. But I want to be like that spiritually. I want my, my spiritual hunger to be like that. Say, so are you hungry for Christ today? No, not really. Have you thought about Christ today? Not really. I want to be hungry for more of him constantly. And I want that hunger to drive everything that I do in this world. Everything that I do, how I talk to you, how I love you, how I service you, how I go to work. It's all driven by this drive because I have a hunger to, to know Christ more. And that is really it for this morning. It's really our empowerment, what we're empowered by. And I hope and pray that this did bring a sense of uh, sobriety to your lives this morning. And you would take a moment, even now, you know, we're, I get it. We all want to rush out of here and get out of our lives. But take a moment, take a moment um, and just consider your ways, consider your life, examine your heart and ask yourself, what truly fuels my life? What do I put all my time in, all my investment, all my energy? Where is it going to? I say this out of love. And I also say this to myself because I need to hear this as much as anybody else. But, you know, time doesn't wait for any of us. We're going to be in eternity before we know. I got a little bit of time. You know, I could walk out this door and fall flat on my face, God forbid, have a heart attack and be gone into eternity. I don't want to waste my time doing things that just don't really add up to anything other than fueling my own addiction. I want to be fueled for Christ. And I pray all of us would, would have taken the message that way this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together. And Lord, we thank you that you are um, 
ever-present within us.